0: We're in the midst of the section of the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is speaking against the nations. And tonight we're going to see Isaiah, listen to Isaiah, hear him speak to three different nations surrounding Israel. First he's going to speak to the Moabites, then he's going to speak to Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, and then finally he's going to speak to the Ethiopians, Let's jump right into it. Isaiah chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. The burden against Moab. Now, maybe we should just stop right there and think about Moab. The founder of the people of Moab was the son born of the incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah had been destroyed, and Lot and his wife and two of their daughters escaped the city. You remember what happened to Lot's wife? Turned around and became a pillar of salt. So Lot and his two daughters escaped the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. First they hid out in a little town named Zoar. But then after that, they fled up into the hills, perhaps feeling that that city would be destroyed as well. And Lot's two daughters got him drunk and had incestuous relations with him. And the children born of that union was the founder of the nation of the Amorites, and the founder of the nation of the Moabites. Well, this is where the Moabites came from. They settled in the plains to the southeast of Israel in what is today modern-day Jordan. Now, at certain times in the history of Israel, the Moabites were great enemies of Israel. After all, it was Balak, the king of Moab, who hired Balaam the prophet, hoping that Balaam could destroy Israel by cursing them. Later on, it was in the days of the judges that Eglon, king of the Moabites, oppressed Israel in the days of the judges, and God had to send a deliverer named Ehud to go and deliver Israel from the control of the Moabites. Now, during the days of Saul and David, Israel established a firm control over Moab, but Later kings of Israel were not always able to keep them under Israeli dominance. Now, what's interesting about this, so you have this element of competing with the nation of Moab, but there's a very interesting other connection you need to understand here. There was a Moabite connection with Israel, first of all, because they were related by bloodline. The Moabites came from Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. So the founder of the people of Israel, Abraham, and the founder of the people of Lot, or the descendant of them, Lot, they were, uh, they were of the same lineage. So there was a connection there. Now, it was because of that that God told Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, when they were coming into the Promised Land, God told Israel, don't take the land of the Moabites. It belongs to them. Let them have it. As well, David Israel's greatest king was one quarter Moabite. His grandmother on his father's side, her name was Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabitess. Now, matter of fact, when David was on the run from King Saul, and we've been seeing this, we're coming into this section now on Sunday mornings, uh, when David is on the run from King Saul, a fugitive, David takes his mother and father and entrusts them into the care of the king of Moab so that he can look over them. So there's this Moabite connection between David and the house of David and the kingdom of Moab. Now, for this reason, there's a great deal of sadness and empathy on Isaiah's part as he describes the coming judgment upon Moab. So check it out here. Uh, Verse 1, the burden against Moab, because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, because in the night Kir of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, he has gone up to the temple and Dibon to the high places to weep. Moab will wail over Nebo and over Mediba. Over all their heads will be baldness and every beard cut off. In their streets they will clothe themselves with sackcloth. On the tops of their houses and in the streets everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. Heshbon and Elea will cry out. Their voices shall be heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be burdensome to him. You get the feeling of this? Here is the coming judgment upon Moab, upon the cities. And he lists the cities, city after city. These belong to the people Moab, but the warning sign has gone on. It says the air raid sirens gone off in each one of these cities. The attack is coming. Judgment is coming. And everybody's fleeing. Some of them go to their temple. Did you notice this? Look at verse 2. He's gone up to the temple and to, Dabon, to the high places to weep. They seek their pagan gods as the judgment from other nations comes upon them. What are they going to do? Who are they going to turn to? They turn to whatever they can. They should turn to the Lord, but they don't. They clothe themselves with sackcloth and everybody will wail weeping bitterly at this invasion and as a result of it, there's great distress. (coughs) Excuse me. There's great mourning in Moab. Now, I want you to keep your finger here in Isaiah chapter 15. I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 48 because Jeremiah describes the same Incident of judgment upon the Moabites. Jeremiah chapter 1. We're going to begin here at verse 11. Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 11. What did I say? 41, whatever. 48, 41, hut, hut, hike. Jeremiah, chapter 48, verse 11. Listen to the Lord's judgment against Moab. Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste has remained in him and his scent has not changed. Do you understand the image that God's drawing from here? You may not, because he's drawing on an image from the ancient practice of purifying and refining wine. How they would refine wine in the ancient world is they would put wine in a vessel, and the dregs, the impurity in the wine, would sink down to the bottom because of gravity. The impurities, the dregs, would be heavier. And so if you would just set the wine in the vessel, over time, it would settle down there. And then what you would do is, once the dregs settled, you carefully poured off the wine to leave the dregs down at the bottom, and you just poured off the good part. And if you poured it from vessel to vessel, each time along the way, allowing the dregs to settle, that is how you got yourself a good, pure product of wine in the end. Now, here's the tricky part. If you left it too long with the dregs at the bottom then the whole flavor of the wine in the vessel would take on the flavor of the dregs. So the trick was letting the dregs settle to the bottom, but then pouring it off without letting the dregs sit in there too long. Do you hear what God is saying to Moab? Look at it again, verse 11. Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remained in him and his scent has not changed." You see what God's saying? He's saying, well, Moab, you're just sitting there. You're sitting on the dregs. The dregs are starting to flavor the wine. The purifying process isn't working. So you know what the Lord says? Here's God's solution. Check it out. Verse 12. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I shall send him wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles. Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh. That was the Moabite God as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. Do you understand what's going on? You know what God says. He says, Moab, you've settled down too long. I'm going to pour you. You didn't want to move on. You you didn't want to seek this change. You didn't want to seek me for how you could change, for how you could grow. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take it out of your hands. I'm going to pour you. I'm going to mix things up in your life. Do you ever feel like God is pouring you from vessel to vessel? Like your whole life is getting upset and being poured out and regathered. You know what's going on? There could be a lot of things going on, a lot of different levels, but part of it is God's purifying process. You liked it before when everything was comfortable, right? You know what comfortable can mean? You've settled on your dregs. God won't allow it. He loves you. So he says, okay, I'm going to tip you over. And you say, oh, Lord, no, everything will spill. Everything will go everywhere. No, the Lord says, I'm going to pour you from vessel to vessel." vessel. You see, when we're at ease and when we're never poured from vessel to vessel, we settle on the dregs and we're never refined. God uses the pouring process to refine us. I'm not saying it's fun, but it is necessary. So that's what God was doing to Moab and in Isaiah chapter 15, you get such a, a vivid sense of the pain, of the bewailing, of, the, of the, the agony that they're going through. Look at it here in verse 5. It says, My heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old heifer, for by the ascent of Leuthith they will go up with weeping for the way of Haranim. They will raise up a cry of destruction, for the waters of Nimrim will be desolate for the green grass is withered away, the grass fails, there's nothing green. Therefore, the abundance they've gained and what they've laid up they will carry away to the brooks of the willows. The idea is refugees are fleeing. You see it on the television news, don't you? Flight of refugees in the world right now. And you look at your heart breaks, oh, it's very sad. Look at those poor people, they're displaced, and you look at it. That's what Isaiah sees in this prophecy. He sees the Moabite people, they've been devastated by attack, by judgment that's come upon them, and they're fleeing, they're refugees. And the grass is withered away, the beautiful plains of Moab were once wonderful grazing land, but now under the hand of God's judgment, the green grass is withered away. And they take everything they have, (coughs) they carry it with them. You see these poor refugees carrying with them everything that they can possibly carry, that's the picture here in the book of Isaiah, as they're fleeing. And listen to the cry of the refugees in verse 8. For the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to Eglaim, and it's wailing to Bear Elim. For the waters of the Demon will be full of blood. Because I will bring more upon Demon, lions upon him who escapes from Moab, and on the remnant of the land. If the judgment of the night attack did not complete the work of judgment, God would send lions upon him who escapes. God was going to finish his work of judgment against Moab. Chapter 16 continues on the thought. Verse 1, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness to the mount of the daughter of Zion, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Now, it's a very interesting thing. You read that, and you scratch your head, don't you? What is it, send the lamb to the ruler of the land? What's that? Now, I know it's tempting to look for a messianic connection there, right? Ah, the lamb of God, yes. Well, not exactly. This is a reference to the way that the Moabite kings at one time used to bring tribute to the kings of Judah. And what they would bring when they would pay tribute, which was really a sense of taxes or extortion. See, basically, what the Israelites would do is they would come to the king of Moab and they would say, okay, look, we're bigger than you, we're stronger than you. You're under our governance. You're under our dominance. Therefore, you have to give us 10,000 lambs every year. And the king would say, what? They'd say, yeah, or we'll attack you. It's up to you. 10,000 lambs every year, or we'll attack you. Okay, fine. So they would pay the tribute of 10,000 lambs, or whatever the amount was. Uh, 10,000 is probably too high of a figure. Keep your finger there in Isaiah chapter 16. Turn back to 2 Kings chapter 3, and you'll get an idea of exactly what I'm talking about. 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 4. Oh, 10,000, I was off. Look at verse 4. 2 Kings 3, 4. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. You see, you see, during the days of King Ahab, it was understood, okay, every year or so, the king of Moab brings these 100,000 lambs and the, the wool from it. But when King Ahab died, the king of Moab said, well, forget it, I'm not doing anymore. A weaker king has come. I don't have to, to give in to his demands. Now, go back to Isaiah chapter 16 and see it in that light. What the prophet is telling the king of Moab is, send the lamb to the ruler of the land. Submit yourself to Mount Zion again. Submit yourself to the people of God. Listen, king of the Moabites, your answer is not in your pagan gods. Your answer is in the Lord God of Israel. So submit yourself to the ruler of Israel. And then Isaiah paints a very powerful picture of the helpless, confused state of Moab under the hands of God's judgment. Look at verse 2. He says, It shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of its nest, so shall the daughters of Moab at the fords of be at Arnon. And that's the whole idea of how desperate, how confused, how disoriented they are. They're helpless. They're they're confused. So that's the the, the counsel to Moab. Listen, submit to the ruler of Israel. But now in verse 3, Isaiah is going to plead with the people of Judah, with the rulers of Judah. Listen to what he says to them. Take counsel. Execute judgment. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray him who escapes. You see, that's the counsel. Listen, you got this flood of refugees coming from Moab. And, and what does Isaiah say to the rulers of Judah? Take them in. Protect them. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. In other words cast your cooling shadow upon them so in the middle of the day you're giving them shelter and protection from the hot sun. Hide the outcast; Do not betray him who escapes. You see, this is a marvelous, marvelous plea for mercy on behalf of the people of Judah. They see these refugees flooding from Moab. Won't you help them? Won't you care for them? I think it's marvelous that Isaiah wanted Judah to be a place of refuge and protection for Moab when Moab was under judgment. Now, doesn't it strike you that that's exactly what the church should be? That the church should be a place of refuge and protection for those who feel like they're under the hand of God's judgment. You feel somebody who feels like the Lord's just got his whooping stick on them. Maybe they don't know the Lord yet. Maybe they do know the Lord, but they just feel that the heavy hand of God is upon them. Shouldn't they be able to come to the church and we put a cooling shadow over them? We give them a place of protection if they feel like they're an outcast. We don't betray them. No, we give them a place of protection and refuge. That's what Isaiah wanted Judah to be. Now, Take a look here. It's a little bit confusing because in verse 4, he shifts gears real suddenly again. Look at it again, verses 4 and 5. He says, Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the throne will be established. And one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Now again... This is a sudden and a curious change of focus. I think sometimes the best way to think of the prophets is in a very cinematic way. It's like a Bergman movie. Sudden shifts of scene, where at the one hand, he's looking at the refugees flooding forth from Moab, and then his gaze turns very quickly, and now he's looking at the rulers of Judah, and he pleads with them to take in the refugees. Now, what Isaiah does is it seems that he lifts his gaze very high, and he looks off into the distance at a time when Moab itself will receive refugees from Judah. say, what? Well, that's what he's saying here. Look at verse 4. Let my outcasts, right? The Lord saying, let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. God is asking the Moabites to receive his people. Well, when will that happen? Well, some commentators, and I would agree with them, think that this is an end times prophecy of how Moab will be a place of refuge for the Jewish people escaping the fury of the Antichrist in the Great Tribulation after the abomination of desolation. The Bible says that there's going to come upon the world a a charismatic, political, economic, uh, social superman known as the Antichrist. And he's going to rule the world. Willingly the world will follow him because he'll seem to have all the answers. And in particular, the Jewish people, either in a formal religious way or maybe just in a political and economic way, they're going to embrace this man as their Messiah and he'll do a lot of good for them. But then in the midst of the last seven-year period that God has appointed for business as usual on this planet Earth, in the midst of it, that political leader, which is known in the Bible as the Antichrist, believe me, that's not going to be on his business card, if you know what I mean. But he's known in the Bible as the Antichrist, as many other titles. That political and and social and, and economic Superman, he will turn on the Jewish people with a fury. And the Bible says that the Jewish people will have to scatter and flee from Israel. And where will they head out? Well, one of the places where they will flee to will be Moab. Israel, fleeing from the fear of the Antichrist, will find refuge in places like Moab. And they will be, look at it here in verse 5, excuse me, verse 4, they will be protected from the face of the spoiler until devastation ceases and the oppressors are consumed out of the land. And in those end times, verse 5 will be fulfilled. The throne of the Messiah will be established, and the Messiah himself will sit on the throne. One will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David. His reign is going to be wonderful. He'll be judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Isn't it remarkable? The many uh, variated visions of Isaiah here. He sees the refugees He sees the rulers of Judah, and then he looks distant to the end times, and then now he looks back at the refugees in verse 6. We have heard the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. Therefore, Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail for the foundations of Kir, Harasheth. You shall mourn. Surely they are stricken. For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have broken down its choice plants which have reached the Jazir and have wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. Now, interestingly, in this whole prophecy of Isaiah against Moab, this is the only place where her sin is described. And it's significant that the sin of Moab was pride. Do you know why it's significant that it was? Because as far as the nations go, Moab was backwater hick town. Right? Friends, they weren't even as a mighty nation as Israel was. This is like, you know, Luxembourg, you know, flexing its muscle. Or some smaller, uh, you know, less politically important Central American nation. God comes to them and says, I'm rebuking you because of your pride. Now, when God comes to the Babylonian Empire, we say, aha, yes, rebuke them for their pride, Lord. God comes to the Assyrian Empire. Yes, Lord, rebuke them for their pride. But do you realize that pride can exist in pretty small packages? You don't have to be exalted to a high place. Have pride in your life, no, my friends. Pride can be just as consuming with the small as it can be with the great moab 's relative insignificance did not make them immune to pride, and that was their sin, and so the pride is also referred to in the prophecy of judgment that we saw in jeremiah chapter forty eight God would judge the proud nation so that Moab shall wail for Moab. The Moabites took great pride in their vineyards. But if you notice, it says here in verse 8 that God's going to take those beautiful vineyards of Moab and trample them down. He's going to use the lords of the nations to break them down and to destroy everything that Moab took pride in. So verse 9, you see the sorrow of the prophet's heart. Therefore, I will bewail the vine of Sibma. With the weeping of Jezir. I will drench you with my tears. O Heshbon and Eliah, for battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. Gladness is taken away and shouting. Excuse me, and joy from the plentiful field and the vineyards. There will be no singing, nor will there be shouting. No treaders will tread out the wine in their presses. I've made their shouting cease. Therefore, my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Kir, Heres. It shall be, or it shall come to pass, when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he will come to a sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. You see the broken heart of Isaiah in the midst of this call to judgment upon Moab. As he prophesies of this coming judgment, he's not happy. He's not pleased that judgment's coming upon a rival nation. As far as he's concerned, gladness is taken away. It's like he sees those people trampling out the grapes in the vineyard. Oh, it's a beautiful time. Everybody's rejoicing. It's the time of the harvest. Isaiah looks, don't be happy. Moab's being judged. There's another group of their gladness. It's a joyful day. Isaiah looks, don't be happy. Moab is being judged. Same time, Isaiah knows that Moab is looking in the wrong places for answers. At the end of verse 12, it says they're looking for it in the high places. They're looking for it in the sanctuaries of their gods, but they will not prevail. Isaiah knew the pain of seeing calamity come and watching people turn to the wrong places in the midst of their destruction. Do you know that pain in your life? I mean, you see somebody else going through a bad time and they're looking to the wrong place for comfort. They're going up to a high place. They're going up to the sanctuary of their God. Maybe it's a bar. Maybe it's a a group of friends that are giving them ungodly counsel. Maybe it's just the, the inner recesses of their own heart and they're not seeking the Lord. Painful, isn't it? That's the pain Isaiah feels. Friends, you understand the, the heart that Isaiah has here? Moab was a rival nation, a pagan nation, yet he did not rejoice in their judgment. You don't get that feeling with everybody. When Isaiah's talking about the judgment of God upon the Babylonians, it's almost like you get the feeling, yeah, come on, Lord, bring it to him. Not the Moabites. You know, this was the same attitude Jesus had when he wept for Jerusalem. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." When Jesus saw the desolation that was to come upon the city that rejected him, he didn't rejoice. So here's my question for you. Do you gloat in the judgment that comes upon other people? Sometimes it's easy to do. You know, you something, in? he says, good. They deserve it. Good for them. Yeah, Lord. Feel like putting another notch in your Bible or something. Don't, friends. You know, just let the Lord take care of all that stuff. And even when you do let the Lord take care of it, don't rejoice in it. Is there a single person in this room who wants to be judged by the Lord as they deserve for their sin? Not me. I don't know. If anybody in this room does, I, I, I want you to come on up front after service. I want you to pray for me if there's a single person in here who wants to be judged as they deserve for their sin. No, friends. No. God has been merciful for us. And we need to ask Him to be merciful to other people, too. Well, verse 13 and 14, This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. Now, Isaiah speaking for the Lord announces that judgment's going to come upon Moab in this time period. The judgment's going to humble Moab. Their glory will be despised. And we don't know the exact date of Isaiah's prophecies. We can't know for sure when and how exactly it was fulfilled, but God was giving this three-year period of time, undoubtedly to give the Moabites a chance to repent and to give the nation of Israel the opportunity to have their hearts softened towards the Moabites. That finishes Isaiah chapters 15 and 16, which dealt with the burden against the Moabites. But now in chapter 17, we have the burden against Damascus. Now, if you notice it, it says that right there, Isaiah 17, 1, the burden against Damascus. Now, Damascus is one of the great cities of the ancient world, and it was the capital of the ancient nation, and by by the way, the modern nation as well, of Syria, and Syria is positioned to the immediate northeast of Israel. And the northern tribes around the Sea of Galilee had constant contact and interaction with Syria. And so when he says uh, 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 the burden against Damascus, it's almost like if God were to say the burden against Washington, D.C. You'd know that he's speaking of America because Washington, D.C. is our capital. Well, it's the same thing. Damascus is the capital of Syria. Now, as we go on, you're going to see an interesting twist on this. But let's take a look as we make it through here. Verse 1 the burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aurora forsaken. they will be for flocks which lie down and no one will make them afraid. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. They will believe it is the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. So you read that and you go, wow, that's, Pretty radical. Damascus is going to cease from being a city, and Damascus was one of the most beautiful cities of the ancient world. But the coming judgment of the Assyrians would reduce it to a heap of ruins, and it would be rebuilt and it would be inhabited again. But great destruction, great desolation was going to come upon the Syrian capital of Damascus. Now, I don't know if you remember this from previous chapters in the Book of Isaiah, but current in the day of Isaiah, there was a confederation. Between Isaiah, between Isaiah, boy, I'm about to get really mixed up in the terms of my head. Let me be careful here. Between Syria and Israel. Now, let me go back and review this, both for the sake of repetition and for the sake, for some of you, this might be new information. When Israel came, when the people of Israel, the Jewish people, came from Egypt into the promised land, they were one united nation. And for 400 years, they lived together without any king. It was the time of the judges. And God would just raise up different leaders from time to time. Then, uh, through a lot of different circumstances, some of them godly, some of them not so godly, they established kings. The first king of Israel was Saul. The second king of Israel was David. The third king of Israel was Solomon. Between Saul, David, and Solomon... That was a, a reign of Israel for more than a hundred years. But after the reign of Solomon, there was a civil war. And the Jewish people divided into two nations, the northern nation of Israel and the southern kingdom, I should say, of Judah. And so you had Judah to the south, Israel to the north. The ten northern tribes confederated together together, and were the northern kingdom of Israel, the two southern tribes confederated together, and were the southern kingdom of Judah. Simple enough? Well, here's the point of it. The northern kingdom of Israel and Syria joined together in alliance against the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, that's not right. That's not good. So what's interesting in this is as God gives this prophecy against Syria, He lumps in the northern kingdom of Israel with them. You want me to show it to you? Sure, look at verse 4. And it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane. Jacob, that's Israel, right? And the fatness of his flesh will grow lean. It shall be when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the head with his arms. And it shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephraim. Yet the gleaning of grapes... Will be left in it, like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of Israel. Now, what he's doing in verses four, five, and six is explaining something that he mentioned back there in verse three. Did you notice it? In verse three, he says, The fortress also will cease from Ephraim. All right, here's another thing to educate you, to help you understand the prophet a little bit better. Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. The tribe of Ephraim was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Ephraim was the dominant tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. So sometimes God would refer to the northern kingdom as Ephraim. So when you read Ephraim in the prophet Isaiah, say to yourself, northern kingdom of Israel. So the judgment is coming upon Syria and the northern king of Israel, look at it, verse 3, the fortresses, of Ephra- of, uh, uh, the fortresses will also seize from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria, they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts, and in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane. God's judgment is coming upon both Syria and Israel. Now, before I get on to verse 7, I think it's interesting to, to speak about something, and that's the... political situation today with Israel and Syria. You know, there's a nation of Israel today and there's a nation of Syria today. And the nation of Syria is headed up by one of the true psychopaths on the world scene today, a guy named Assad. And uh, wow, this guy is is a, a brutal terrorist guy. And He is at war with Israel constantly. His nation is in a lot of trouble, economically, politically, but he clings to power. Now, what's interesting is that the interaction between Syria and Israel is a potential hotspot for future conflict. You see, at one time, Syria occupied an area known as the Golan Heights. If you think on your Bible map, and maybe you have a Bible map in your Bible somewhere, if you want to turn to it, you could see where the Sea of Galilee is. North of the Sea of Galilee is a long, broad plateau, and that's the Golan Heights. Now, if you know anything about military strategy, high ground is strategic ground. If you hold the high ground militarily, you're always in a superior position because you can attack and defend high ground much easier than low ground if you're on high ground, you can send mortars and artillery fire down into low ground very, very easily. Well, that's exactly what the Syrians did. <coughs> they held this area known as the Golan Heights and they would send down mortar fire and rocket fire and artillery shells into the Israeli villages and cities all around the Sea of Galilee constantly. The Israelis got tired of it. Then one day, It's 1960s and 1970s. There was a great war between Israel and Syria. And when the Syrians attacked, the Israelis just plowed back and pushed the Syrians off the Golan Heights. Now, if you go on a tour of Israel, you've got to go on the bus ride through the Golan Heights. Now, what you see is this amazing sloping plateau. And when you're up on it, and when we're not talking about a small patch of land, we're talking about a very substantial, you know, uh, region here. You see what an absolutely strategic piece of ground this is militarily. And you know what the Syrians say? The Syrians say, hey, that's our land. Give it back. The Israelis say, not on your life. If we give this back to you, you're just going to shell us again. You might say, well, what are the Israelis doing with that land? Nothing. You want to know why? Because there's landmines all over it. You can't go hardly anywhere on the Golan Heights. Everything's very closely restricted and this and that. You get off the road, you start wandering that, you'll get blown up by a landmine because the Syrians buried tons of landmines. Now, when the Israelis conquered the Golan Heights, there's all these fascinating, fascinating stories of of, uh, intelligence work and stuff behind the scenes. The Israelis had some incredible moles planted in the Syrian intelligence community and uh, in, the, in the military community. And they told them to do things like, okay, put, this, put your alt- artillery placements behind the eucalyptus trees, because that'll protect them. And then, So when the Israelis started attacking on that, they just shot for all the eucalyptus trees, and they knew where all the uh, artillery placements were, and the, all this kind of brilliant intrigue, and as a remarkable victory. The hand of the Lord was obviously upon the, the Israelis, but it, it was also an incredible victory just from a military intelligence standpoint. Now, The Israelis are adamant that they'll never get back the Golan Heights because it's necessary for their security. In the meantime, Syria is fighting Israel through terrorism and through their support of militia groups in Lebanon. Syria dreams of the, the vision of a greater Syria, which encompasses Lebanon and most of northern Israel. It's a powerful vision. Friends, keep your eye on that part of the world because this interaction between Syria and Israel is a very, very important dynamic to the present day. Well, this judgment was coming upon the northern kingdom of Israel and upon Syria that had aligned themselves together against Judah. Look at verse 7 now of Isaiah 17. It says, "...in that day a man will look to his Maker, and his eye will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the works of his hands." He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. In that day, his strong cities will be as as a forsaken bough and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. In the midst of such severe judgment, some will respond as they should with humble respect to God. They'll turn their eyes away from the altars of, of vanity, from the works of their hands. God does that in time of judgment upon us, doesn't he? He gets our attention away from the things that we turn our focus on wrongly. And he says, no, I want you to look to me instead. And even the strong cities that they had built, those will be forsaken as well. As a matter of fact, look at verse 10. This is very powerful stuff here. He says, Because you've forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold, therefore you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In the day you will make your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish. But the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. Friends, do you understand that one aspect The Lord's judgment against Israel would be to bring their hard work to nothing. They would work hard to plant and to grow crops, both literally and figuratively. But the harvest would be a heap of ruins. That's a severe judgment of the Lord, isn't it? When your hard work is fruitless. This can be one of the most devastating aspects of the Lord's judgment. Haggai chapter 1 verse 6 speaks of this work of the Lord. He says, "You've sown much and bring in little. You eat but you do not have enough. You drink but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm, and he who earns wages earns wages to be put in a bag with holes." You ever feel like that? Friends, turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Seek him. Ask God, "Lord, what do you want me to do?" Am I on the wrong track? Is there something you want to humble me in? Is there some work of repentance you want to deepen in my life? Lord, what is it? How much better it is to be listening to Jesus and have our service directed and blessed by him. Remember the apostles, the disciples there, they were fishing all night. Didn't catch anything. Man, that's a drag. It's a drag when you're fishing all night and that's how you make your living. This wasn't just... Pleasure fishing. This wasn't coming in on the charter boat with an empty, you know, bag. This was, this is my bread and butter, and I worked all night, and I didn't make anything. They come in, and they're tired, and they're exhausted. Then Jesus comes, and he says, hey, Peter, throw your net over there. Don't you just love that from the Lord? It's like that's the last thing some fisherman wants to hear. Some, Some carpenter standing on the shore, you know, you're thinking, man, you never fished a day in your life. I've been fishing all night. You can't fish in the morning. The sun's on the lake. The fish go to deeper, deeper water. No, you, you fish at night. Don't you get it, Jesus? But you know, Peter didn't do that. Okay, Lord, I'll do what you say. And he let the Lord direct his service. And he had worked hard all night, and it was good work, and it was hard work. But it didn't amount to anything. But when the Lord directed his service... What, he brought in such a catch that he couldn't even contain it in the boats. That's how much better it is to have the Lord direct your service. And why did the Lord bring this judgment on Israel? Check it out here. Look at this. And this is where you need to check your heart if you feel that you're in this place. Verse 10, because you've forgotten the God of your salvation. Now, in one way, this doesn't seem like a great sin at all, does it? I mean, after all, why does God need us to remember him? You ever have somebody like a total stranger come up to you and say, remember me? It's like, why should I remember you? You know, I mean, maybe you just met him once, a passing thing. Well, I don't know. Why do I remember you? And Maybe some people feel like that towards the Lord. Some people's attitude towards the Lord is, look, I'll leave you alone. You leave me alone, right? Just whatever, God. I won't bug you. You don't bug me. Friends, it's a sin to forget the God of your salvation. You know why? First of all, it's a sin because he made you. He made you. You didn't happen by chance. You didn't come up from some monkey or some amoeba. He made you. You owe him. He created you. That's all there is to it. That's reason enough. God has rights over us because he created us. That's not all. Friends, it's not only that. He's the God of your salvation. If God has a claim to every human being who walks this earth because he created them, how much more does God have a claim over his people whom he's redeemed and saved? Let me put it to you this way. If you forget him, you can forget about your salvation. Don't forget the Lord. Don't put him on the back burner. Don't shuffle him off into some corner of your life. Do you realize that Satan doesn't need to make us bank robbers or murderers to destroy us? It's quite enough simply to make us forget. You can forget because you're falling asleep spiritually. You can forget because you don't have a, your attention focused the right place. You can forget because you're distracted. Those are all reasons why we forget things in everyday life, right? You forget, to, well, I was nodding off when they said that to me. That's why I forgot. Or I wasn't paying attention. That's why I forgot. Or, or I, I was distracted. That's why I forgot. Friend, Satan doesn't care how he does it, but he wants you to forget the God of your salvation. I want you to push him off into a corner. Friends, don't do it. You feel like you're in that place that the chastising hand of God is upon you. You feel him spanking you, so to speak. Take an inventory of your heart and say, am I forgetting the Lord my God? Remember what it says in the book of Proverbs. That if you acknowledge him in all your ways, he'll direct your paths. Isn't that a glorious promise? That's the opposite to forgetting him. Well, look at verse 12 here. Here we shift gears again. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of the nations, that make a rushing like a rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushings of many waters, but God will rebuke them. And they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like the rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold, at eventide trouble, and before the morning he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. Now, in verses 12, 13, and 14, again, first, in the beginning of chapter 17, the prophet puts his eyes on Syria. Then he puts his eyes on Israel. Now he puts his eyes on the Assyrians who are going to bring the judgment against Syria and Israel. Now, I hope I haven't confused you so far. Let's remember here. We're talking about three different nations. The northern kingdom of Israel, right? (laughs) The nation to the northeast of them, Syria, right? And then the big empire further to the east of Assyria. That's A-S-S-Y-R-I-A. The Assyrians were the mighty empire that were going to come and judge them. And you know what God says? God says, I'm going to take care of them too. I'm going to judge them. Friends, this is a comforting principle that even in the midst of judgment, God shows mercy as bad as it was going to be for Israel. It could have been worse. Instead, God's going to allow it for a time. Then he's going to rebuke the ones who are attacking Israel. Israel was not going to be at the mercy of circumstances. They were not going to be at the mercy of their enemies. They were going to be at the mercy of God. And that's a comforting place to be. So now, we we'll finish up tonight with chapter 18. Chapter 18 is short. You take a little look at it, seven verses. I think you should kind of gulp hard before we take a look here. Let me read to you what some of the commentators have said about Isaiah chapter 18. While well, I pause with a drink of water. The Dutch commentator, Bultima, says, to us, this brief chapter is the most difficult one of all the 66 chapters of Isaiah. Wolf says, although the prophecy is a short one, it probably ranks as the most obscure chapter in the entire section. And Adam Clark says, this is one of the most obscure prophecies in the whole book of Isaiah. Let's get it on. What's this talking about here? Isaiah chapter 18. Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by the sea, each in vessels of reed on the waters, saying, let's just stop right there. Now, this is a prophecy directed to Ethiopia, but I want you to notice something. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1. The burden against Babylon. You see it? Isaiah chapter 15, verse 1. The burden against Moab. Isaiah chapter 17, verse 1. The burden against Damascus. Do you notice how Isaiah 18, 1 does not begin the burden against Ethiopia? That's because this is not a heavy pronouncement of judgment. But this is a word of God to the Ethiopians. Now, in the days of Isaiah, Ethiopia was a major world power. Not only because they covered a much more extensive ground than we see today. Today, the the ancient kingdom of Ethiopia, or Cush, as it's sometimes known in the Old Testament, it encompasses what's modern-day Ethiopia and Somalia and the Sudan. But not only that, the Ethiopians at the time of Isaiah also ruled over the mighty kingdom of Egypt. At that time... The rulers of Egypt were an Ethiopian dynasty. So when he talks about Ethiopia, he's including it and Egypt. As a matter of fact, though we're not going to get to it tonight, Isaiah chapter 19, look at it, verse 1, the burden against Egypt. That focuses more on Egypt, but here it's almost as if in chapter 18, he has Ethiopia and the whole picture in mind. So he refers to this, he says, shadowed with buzzing wings in verse 1 there. The Nile Valley is famous for its many whirring insects. And then it says, which sends ambassadors by the sea. You see, the scene pictures Ethiopian ambassadors who come to make an alliance with Judah and other nations. Why? Okay, now get the picture here. You got the mighty empire of Assyria, right? And then you have the other world player at the time was... Ethiopia slash Egypt, the two of them together. So you know what's happening here. At this time, the Assyrians have power over Judah and Israel and all the nations in that area. Do you know what the ambassadors from Ethiopia are trying to convince them to do? Hey, why don't you rebel against the Assyrians and come on over to our side? Join us. You know how it was during the Cold War? when you had the United States and the Soviet Union, and then all these other little countries caught in the middle, aligning on either side of the... That's what's going on here. The two superpowers are Ethiopia slash Egypt and the Assyrians. And the people of God are caught in the middle right between the two. So what does it say here, verse 2? Which sends ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of reed on the water, saying, Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth and skin." to a people terrible from the beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose lands rivers divide. Now, it seems that as the Ethiopian ambassadors invite Judah to rebel against the Assyrians, they're asking Judah to send messengers back to Ethiopia. The Ethiopian ambassadors come to Judah. They say, send messengers back to our land, the land as it says, a nation tall and smooth as skin, a nation powerful, send them back with news that you want to align yourselves with us, not with the Assyrians. And so what does the Lord say to this? This is an offer of protection. This is an offer of alliance. Come, we will help you. Come, we'll join you. Join with us against the Assyrians. That's what the Ethiopian ambassadors say. And what does the Lord say? Look at verse 3. The Lord says, no, thank you. All the inhabitants of the world and the dwellers on the earth. When he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest and I will look for my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs with the pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They will left to be together for the mountain birds of prey, and for the beasts of the earth, the birds of prey will summer on them, and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. I know that's a little obscure, but let me just kind of give you the sense of it, what the Lord's telling the Ethiopian ambassadors, basically. No, thank you. When I want an army to protect my people, I can call it myself. I can raise up a banner. I can send out a trumpet to the nations. As a matter of fact, I can put the hurt on Assyria so bad that their corpses will litter the land and be bird food for the, prey, for the birds of prey. And it'll be uh, food for the wild beasts to come and eat on all winter long. Ethiopians, no thank you. I don't need your help. Now, what's interesting to me in this is that as the Lord God rejects the alliance with Ethiopia, it's almost as if the Lord isn't sore at them. Significantly, there's no word of rebuke or judgment against the Ethiopians. It's almost like the Lord's just saying, no thanks, I don't need it. It's almost as if the Ethiopians are offering well-intentioned, but... Harmful help. So the Lord says no, we can do it here. I can raise up an army against them. Matter of fact, he says instead of us sending you ambassadors, why don't you send us some verse seven? In that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin and from a people terrible from the beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts to Mount Zion. The Lord says to the Ethiopians, no, you know what? You guys are going to bring us tribute. You guys are going to come to us for help. Come to us for what we can give you instead of us coming to what you can give us you know it was fulfilled. This prophecy was fulfilled. You know when it was fulfilled? I'll give you one instance. Isn't it interesting that in the book of Acts, one of the international people that come to faith in Jesus Christ is an Ethiopian eunuch who came to Zion to worship and was led to Jesus Christ through the efforts of Philip the evangelist. And when he went back home, do you know what he did? He was on fire and he spread the gospel. And in the second and third centuries of the church especially, there was a strong, flourishing church in Ethiopia, which the Christian presence continues to this day. Now, friends, the Lord knows how to bring it back. And he said to the Ethiopians, I know you're offering a shelter, and alliance against these Syrians. We don't need it, but there's going to come a day when you're going to come to us for something we can give you. It's the riches of the Messiah and the glory of the gospel. Now, let me wrap this up. Let's try to draw away three things. I know that on a night like tonight, your head's just kind of, whoa, whoa. Moab, Syria, Damascus, Ethiopia, whoa, whoa. Let's just try to remember three things, right? We saw prophecies against Moab, against Syria and Israel, and against Ethiopia. right, let's let's take one thing from each one of them. From the prophecy against Moab, let's remember this, to be merciful to those who are under the heavy hand of God. Don't add to their misery. Look for a way to relieve it. Number two, from the prophecy against Syria and Israel, you know what struck me? The passage on not forgetting the Lord. How easy it is for us especially when things are going good, to forget the Lord. Friends, let's not forget the Lord. And then finally, from the passage dealing with the Ethiopians, God knows how to take care of himself. Maybe the Ethiopians just wanted to help, but God said, don't need it. I know how to take care of myself. We don't have to fear for the Lord's cause. He knows how to take care of himself. Thank you, Jesus. He does not need me to defend him. I just got to get out of the way. And he does more than an adequate job of himself. So let's take those things away from Moab and Syria and Ethiopia, and next week we pick it up against Egypt. Now no, maybe we'll get into Babylon too, as we'll see what the Lord has to say to the nations through the prophet Isaiah. Let's pray.